Well, uh, we're continuing through Acts, and I think I forgot to put my map slide in this week, didn't I? Just like we gave you some bonus scripture there you didn't know you were going to get at the end. Uh, we, I didn't put that map slide back in. But Paul and Barnabas are continuing to make their way through central Turkey, and then they're going to turn around, retrace their steps, and head all the way back home. So the first missionary journey is going to be finished in chapter 14. And it took a long time. It wasn't a short thing. They didn't take a two-week vacation. It would have taken them more than that just to do all the walking that they had to do. Uh, For example, when they were in Iconium here at the beginning of chapter 14, it says Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. And on their various missionary journeys, we know that sometimes Paul spent a couple of years, especially in Ephesus, it's one of his major home bases on the coast of uh, Turkey to the west of where we're going to be today. But uh, he took his time. He didn't just stop in and say, you know, preach the gospel, check, and then they left and went somewhere else. They were actually waging war for the people in the cities that they found. They were uh, arguing, and they were persuading, and they were convincing. And, you know, if you're anything like me, you might wonder a little bit about how much longer do I need to be in this, this place that I am. Sometimes it's pretty mundane sort of stuff, right? Like, I don't know if you've been to the doctor recently, but, you know, they tell you show up at, you make your appointment, like, for 930 you show up at 9.30, and they call Elaine. This isn't personal, by the way. They call you into the... <laughs> so I'm going to go see Elaine from now on. So they call you into the, the, the uh, appointment room, like half an hour after your appointment's supposed to be. And then you have to wait another half hour to an hour for an, the doctor. And then the doctor comes and spends like two minutes with you. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, how long do I have to be here, right? How long is this going to take? Uh, some of you, you know, arrived at church this morning. You were already wondering how long this was going to take. Well, it's going to take as long as it takes. That's all I can tell you. How long do we stay? How long do we hold on to people? Isn't that even a more difficult sort of question? Do you have any relationships in your life that are hard? Yeah, you're human, right? Of course you do. There are some people that are not easy to get along with. And you might be wondering to yourself, how long do I need to stick it out? Ever wondered that? How long do I have to stick it out before I've done everything that I can in this relationship? Or uh, maybe you're thinking, I'm in this until the end, right? It's, it's a good relationship, and you're just in difficult circumstances. You see, I'm going to stay as long as it takes. How do we make those sorts of decisions? How long does it take? How much do we put up with? What is all of this worth anyway? I think that's what this passage is about for us today. Paul and Barnabas are out on mission, and they don't have an end date. There isn't something where they say, well, we'll be gone for a year, and then we'll be back. We'll be gone for three months, and then we'll be back. As far as they know, they might be gone the rest of their lives in obedience to what God has called them to. And we get three major snapshots of, of places that they visit in chapter 14. We've got Iconium. We've got Lystra, and then we actually have a snapshot of like five or six other places that they visit and they leave. And what do they teach us? Well, first, when God sends us out on mission, and I think there's actually wisdom in this, not just for when God sends us out on mission, but for all of our lives. When we are out about something that is worthwhile, uh, what happens when people 
get critical. Has anyone ever been critical of you? A boss or a friend or a family member? I remember once uh, I was at the supermarket and buying groceries, and I needed to get spinach. And so I got spinach, and it was in a box. So you can get spinach in a bag and get spinach in the box. And the box looks like it has more spinach. And that was the only spinach I could find. I think it was at Save Mart. And uh, I pick up the box, I put it in my cart, and I get up front to the cashier, and someone looks in my cart and says, you're buying organic spinach? You're such an idiot. I'm like, oh, thank you. Like, <laughs> That was the feedback I was looking for today. We get criticism from all sorts of crazy places, don't we? Sometimes we're waiting in line in the supermarket. Someone looks in our cart, and they start to criticize. But it's also true in the more important places in life, too. You go to work, and your boss is just critical all the time. It's never good enough. You feel like you're always failing. Or maybe uh, it's at home. Maybe you have a family member. Maybe, you know, often what I find is that folks who criticize a lot often have been criticized a lot. And they're often speaking out of their own hurt and pain. And maybe you have someone like that close to you in your life and nothing's ever quite right. Nothing's ever quite good enough. Maybe it's a pattern. Maybe it just happens, you know, sometimes I got to confess, I come home and I'm not in the best mood and I'm ready to be critical of the people around me. Ah, I can't believe you spilled that. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this isn't done. You're just ready to be critical. What do we do when the critics come? Because that's what happens. You know, I opened in my Bible to Acts chapter 14, and then for some reason I closed it. So you're, you're going to have to open it again here. But in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas arrive in Iconium. This is the beginning of chapter 14 here, verses uh, about 1 to 7. I'll know for sure when I get back there. And it says that at Iconium, they went as usual into the Jewish synagogue, and there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But it doesn't matter how good a job you do, there's some people out there who can find fault, aren't there? The Jews who refused to believe, it's an interesting choice of language, isn't it? It's not the Jews who weren't convinced, but the Jews who refused to believe. We talked about that a bit last week. Uh, the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. All this criticism coming in. In Lystra, uh, a little bit later, uh, you, know, you, you heard that wild story about how the apostles healed somebody and everyone says, clearly it's Zeus and Hermes. And they run out and they're going to sacrifice and Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes. They're so disturbed by what's happening. That was the way you showed how upset you are. Because remember in the ancient world, you don't have a closet full of clothes. You have a set or two of clothing. It's a way of saying, I am so worked up about this. I'm destroying something valuable right where you can see it. They tear their clothes, and uh, they go from Im immensely popular, right? Clearly, this is Zeus and Hermes, to uh, some people came from Iconium and from the places they'd been before and, po again, poisoned the minds of the people against Paul and Barnabas, so much so that they stone Paul until they believe he's dead and they walk away. Does that feel a little bit like criticism, maybe? Yeah, we don't like what you have to say after all. What do you do? What do we do when we're faced with criticism that's unjust 
or faced with criticism while we're on mission, doing the things that God has told us to do. He said, go and and tell all the world about who I am, and you open your mouth, and someone says, you shut that mouth. You're so awful and horrible. How dare you tell us those things? Now, that does happen to Christians, but that's also the human condition too, isn't it? doesn't only happen to Christians. Let's not be too self-centered or self-focused here. It's easy once you, dis- once you disagree with someone or when someone disagrees with you to start criticizing needlessly just because you're scared or you're offended or whatever else it is. How do they respond? Well, first of all, it says that, and this is going to be a big shock if you've been following us through the book of Acts, it says that so Paul and Barnabas, after the Gentiles have their minds poisoned against the brothers, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. Isn't that amazing? What do you want to do when people are criticizing you? After, you know, the first thing, like I want to punch them in the face or I want to you know, yell back at them. What do you do after that? You get out, right? You get out. But Paul and Barnabas are convinced that what we are about is important enough that we are willing to weather the criticism. And you know what's amazing about this? By by being willing to weather the criticism, they were serving their critics. They're saying, we're not going to give up just because you don't like what we have to say. We know it is life for you. We're going to persevere. And how did they continue? They spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. If you were here uh, several months ago now, we were in Acts chapter 4, and the disciples were hauled in front of the, the ruling council in Jerusalem. They said, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And the apostles went back, and, and they prayed, and they said this in their prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats, because we sure are, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Right? They're saying, you got to show up, God. It can't just be our winsome words because they're not very winsome apart from a demonstration of your power when people are this set against us. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They didn't let criticism get in the way of the boldness that God provided. They didn't let criticism drive them out from the good mission that God had given them. And I think it's important to remember that they weren't just out there with a sense of, I sure hope we're doing the right thing. They weren't just out there with a sense of, I hope we're really sharing wisdom with these people. Like We've all been there too, right? Where somebody, you know, they're going through something and we think, oh, I really want to help them out, but I don't know if this is the right thing to say or to do. No, they were certain about it because they'd been commissioned by God a couple of chapters before. Remember, they're at their church worshiping and the Holy Spirit says, set aside for me Paul and Barnabas for the ministry to which I've called them. They lay hands on them, they pray, the Holy Spirit appears, and they go out. They were not confused about whether or not the thing they were doing was the right thing because the Holy Spirit had witnessed to that. If you want to know more about that, you have to go back to that sermon, but I'll just summarize a couple of things quickly. The first thing is that we do life together and not alone. 
Because when we do life together, when we're gathered in church like we are this morning, when we're part of small groups, when we're talking to people about our common faith together outside of this context, then we have people who, by the Holy Spirit, are able to speak into our lives as well. You know what the worst thing is for a Christian to be? Alone. God didn't make us for that. It goes all the way back to the garden. Genesis 1 for crying out loud. The very first chapter in the Bible, God says, you know, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so he makes Eve. It says, now you have what you were lacking. And the implication is true for Eve as well. Adam is what you need. You need to not be alone. Because there is a wisdom that comes from two that you don't have when it's just one. There's a wisdom that comes from the 40 or 50 who are here this morning with the Holy Spirit speaking into their lives that doesn't come just from me out alone. So maybe maybe if it happens that you're out and you're getting this criticism, you think, I think this is where God wants me to be, pick up the phone, drive over to church, get together with people who know Jesus and say, will you help me determine, do I need to stay? Is this the place that God has called me? Do I need to be bold and persevere? I read an article this week uh, that was lessons from the Chinese church, the beliefs we can't let go of uh, that we've learned by watching the persecuted Chinese church. And one of the Christians in China said this, in the good times, we should be careful. It's easy to speak out of our abundance things that aren't true. Ever found that to be true? Well, you know, someone is struggling, say, oh, this worked for me, and you tell them all about it, and it's totally the wrong advice. It's not that it's always the wrong advice, but we assume that because it worked for me, it'll work for everyone else too. Ever had that experience? You know what I'm talking about? I got some quizzical looks out there. You go to somebody and you assume you are exactly like me. So whatever situation you find yourself in, if you just do the things that I did, things will be better for you. But the first part of that statement's not true, right? Is anyone here exactly like anyone else? No. Praise God. I I love telling people, the world already has as much Ian as it can handle. (laughs) Maybe more. (laughs) Stop nodding, Cal. I saw that. (laughs) He said, uh, in the good times, we should be careful. But when we encounter persecution, we should be fearless. We should be fearless. To speak the word of God boldly. Some of the Christian life's pretty easy to figure out. What does Jesus want from us? He wants us to live in the life he won for us and to be generous with it. Share it with everyone we meet. Wants us to love God and love our neighbor. That stuff's pretty straightforward. We can do it. When we encounter persecution, we must be fearless. But there is a caution here as well. When criticism comes, we answer the critics with boldness and with certainty in what God has called us to by the wisdom of his people together. But we also don't get lost in the argument. You ever experienced that? You ever been uh, talking with someone and maybe it devolves into an argument and you just realize that one of you is going to have to walk away because you're not going to resolve it today? You ever had that experience? 
One of you, you could just argue forever. Let me tell you, that is in my personality. Like, no, I'm right. Like, and you need to know that I'm right. So, and then God frequently humbles me. Oh, oh, I wasn't as right as I thought. But here's what he says, what God says uh, through Paul to Timothy later in life. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for what? For controversy and for quarrels about words. And this produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He says there are people out there who are talking about Jesus not because they know and love Jesus, but because they think that they can get the life that they want. They can manipulate Jesus and the gospel to make the world the way that they want it to be. And he says those sorts of people love arguing about anything and everything, and they never stop and they never give up. Don't get lost in the argument. Recognize that there's a, you know, we're not making progress here. It's been good talking to you. I had a moment, uh, some Jehovah's Witnesses used to come and visit the manse, and uh, I would talk to them, because, you know, I don't mind a controversy or two. And uh, we, got, we got to the point where I realized we're just saying the same things to each other over and over again. I said, hey, guys, if you want to like, change the conversation, change the tenor of the conversation, if you want to talk about something new, let's do that. Because we're not listening to each other now. We're not making any progress. And they never came back to my house. I don't know exactly what that means, but that was the end of the JWs coming to the manse in Lemon Cove. Don't get lost in the argument. Be bold without having to prove to everyone that you are the big winner. Oh, man, I like being the big winner. How about you guys? I hate it when people think I'm wrong unjustly. But that's because I'm focused more on myself than on the mission that God has given me. Secondly, if the first thing, the first principle for being on mission is to be, to answer our critics with boldness and yet without getting bogged down in a forever argument. We need to recognize that there are unique challenges out there. Did anyone find that story in Lystra weird? Paul and Barnabas show up in town, and everyone says, it's Zeus and Hermes. Or Zeus and Hermes. Like, that is weird. And, and let me tell you why this happens. About 50 years before Paul and Barnabas show up in Lystra, the Latin poet Ovid had narrated in his Metamorphoses an ancient local legend. The supreme god Jupiter, who is Zeus to the Greeks, and his son Mercury, again Hermes to the Greeks, once visited the hill country of Phrygia, right where Lystra is, disguised as mortal men. In their incognito, they sought hospitality, but were rebuffed a thousand times. At last, however, they were offered lodging in a tiny cottage, thatched with straw and reeds from the marsh. Here lived an elderly peasant couple called Philemon and Baucis, who entertained them out of their poverty. Later, the gods rewarded them, but destroyed by flood the homes which would not take them in. 
It's reasonable to suppose both that the Lystran people knew this story about their own neighborhood and that if the gods were to revisit their district, they were anxious not to suffer the same fate as the inhospitable Phrygians. Apart from the literary evidence in Ovid, we actually have two inscriptions and a stone altar that have been discovered near Lystra, which indicate that Zeus and Hermes were worshipped together as local patron deities. So Paul and Barnabas seem to not be aware that they're stepping into this story. They do it a miracle, and where in Jerusalem, everyone had gone, clearly Yahweh, our God, has done this. The people in Lystra say, Zeus and Hermes have come to visit us again, and if we aren't nice, they'll kill us all. So they run, and they get a sacrifice, and they bring it out. And when Paul and Barnabas realize that some disconnect has happened in their messaging, they tear their, stop it. Stop what you're doing. They tear, look at who we are. Like, if we were Zeus and Hermes, we're not tearing our clothes. We're not expressing this, this fright and this, uh, this upset because of what you're doing. Stop right now. We're just men like you. They step, they step into something that they didn't realize was there. See, we do our best to fit new information into our existing worldview, the way we look at the world, the way we understand the world. If people are looking for Zeus and Hermes to come back and potentially wipe out their town, when men come, two men come doing miracles, they're like, clearly that's what's happening here. And Paul says, no, we have a, a basic problem of misunderstanding. We are not Zeus and Hermes. We're here to tell you about somebody better than Zeus and Hermes. Paul's message in response, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news. Let me ask you something. Is Zeus and Hermes coming to possibly wipe out your town great news? Paul says, we're bringing you good news, not about vengeful gods who are looking for you to mess up so they can punish you. Instead, we want to tell you about the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. And in the past, he lets you go your own way, but he hasn't left himself without testimony. You've never heard of him before. In the past, he allowed that, but he's reaching out to you now. He has shown you kindness in the past by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, not floods to wipe out your town. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Every good thing you have comes from this God. He is that kind of good. He is better than Zeus and Hermes. Um, I've mentioned this before, but have you ever heard the myth of Pandora? She's given a box with all the bad things in the world, and eventually uh, she opens it, and now the world's a terrible place. Right? Keep in mind that the, the ancient peoples uh, worshiping the ancient gods, they didn't have an optimistic view of the world. Okay. Pandora has let loose all of the bad stuff. But the last thing in the box to escape, do you remember what that was? Anybody? Hope. Now, in the West, we are optimistic people in the modern West. So we think, oh, how nice. They have hope to sustain them. That's probably not how the ancient Greeks heard the myth. They didn't have that optimistic view. They had a pessimistic view. 
So what would hope do in a world where there really is no hope? It's there to torture you. It's the worst thing of all. If you've ever seen the Shawshank Redemption, there's a wonderful exchange about hope where you have Red, who's been in prison for years and years, and Andy, who's come a little bit later, but at this point he's been in prison a long time too. And Andy talks about, I, you, know, you, you have to have hope. It's what keeps me going here. And Red says hope is a dangerous thing because Red believes he's going to die in prison and things will never get better, and Andy believes he can get out somehow. Paul and Barnabas are saying, we're bringing you something much better than what you know. But man, it takes a lot of work to communicate that sometimes, doesn't it? Because we're so used to settling for the world as we've known it, rather than imagining all that God wants to make it. We do, uh, our response when we come into these sorts of misunderstandings ought to be, to call people to an entirely new way of seeing the world through Jesus. You know what my favorite question is? What if? What if there really was a God out there who loved you? What if there really is a man who died and didn't stay dead? What if the good things in the world don't run out, but there is enough for everybody? What if... There is a God who is looking at you, not waiting for you to mess up so he can squish you, but longing to lift you up to a better and greater life than you've ever known before. See, I think our faith as followers of Jesus Christ is a, is a what-if faith. What if the best scenario, and better than the best-case scenario, was the truth about the world that we live in? Now, I'm by nature... Uh, an optimist, so I have a hard time with pessimism when I hear it. I want you to understand this is going to color some of these words that I'm going to give you. But as Christians, we are especially equipped to see the bright side of everything. Because the worst thing that ever happened is the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, who came to save his people, who healed everyone's diseases, dies on the cross our hands, more or less. That is the very worst case scenario. But what does God do? He says, that's the very way I am going to save you who have blood on your hands, who nailed him to the cross. What if? Principles for being on mission. First, answer our critics with boldness, but not getting wrapped up into these endless, endless arguments that go nowhere. Second, recognizing there are unique challenges that stem from the way we fundamentally see the world and learning how to rephrase the gospel in such a way that we can say to folks, what if? And they will be thrilled. Finally, the last principle, stay until the work is done or move on when the opportunity is gone. Sometimes your work is done. Doesn't mean all the work is done, but sometimes your work is done. And I see this especially in uh, verses 21 to 26 here. 
It says, uh, they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, preached the gospel in Derby and won a large number of disciples. And then they returned to Lystra, right? Because they were done. Then they went to Iconium, because they were done. They'd finished that work. Then they went to Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And then they were done. And so they moved on to the next place. Stay until the work is done. God will call us all the time to work that gets done. And when it's done, move on. There are two reasons to do this. Number one is there's good work somewhere else to do. And number two, you're done. You ever kept doing something even after it was done? You just keep on going. Like, I'll just, I don't know what else to do. I'm just going to keep doing the same thing. No one needs me to do this anymore. It's not satisfying anymore. I don't know what else to do. I'm just going to keep doing the work. Same thing. I'm going to keep taking apart that toilet and putting it back together, even though it was fine in the first place, right? I'm going to keep on, you know, my kids, they've grown up, they've moved out, but I'm going to keep acting like they live in my house. I'm going to keep acting like that's not done. You know, as a pastor, first of all, some humility. My children are 5, 7, 8, and 10. I don't know exactly what it's like for children to move out on you. I'm still in the place of like, wow, someday they're going to move out. I wonder what that'll be like. But a lot of you are in a place where your children have moved out. They're gone. And that's hard, isn't it? I've seen it. I've heard it from so many of you. Our relationship is different. They're making dumb decisions and I can't stop them. That's right. You're done. That's not your job anymore. It's their job to make the decisions. It's your job to be there, to love and encourage and support them, sometimes after those bad decisions are made, to give advice when it's asked for. Your relationship has changed. That part is done. Don't keep staying on when the work is done. Or move on when the opportunity is gone. Uh, 14, 5 to 7 here. It says, in Iconium, remember they preached, they had success, then their minds were poisoned, and it says there was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them, but they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. The opportunity's gone. They're trying to kill us. <laughs> Time to move on. So, you know, sometimes uh, we do stay, and, you know, Sometimes Christians get caught. Sometimes they have been martyred. Sometimes God uses that. He can use that. Jesus died and came back to life. God uses those things. But when you start getting the feeling that these people want to kill me, that may be a sign that you're done. It's time to let someone else carry on that work. And, and not only this, but let me, let me tell you this. We are responsible to share the message, but not for the response of every person. We can't be responsible for that. We are not powerful enough to be responsible for that. You know, Jesus, best preacher who ever lived, I guarantee it. And lots of people didn't respond to Jesus. Or they responded in the wrong way to Jesus. We are not responsible for the way people respond. Now, that's not carte blanche to do a terrible job. I go stand on the street corner and say, you're all going to hell. And you stink and I hate you. But Jesus might hate you less. No, no, no. That's not an excuse to be like, I, I'm, oh, you've con uh, confused me with Zeus and Hermes. No problem. I don't care. You must just suck. 
That's not what is happening here. We are responsible to share the message and to do it well, but we are not responsible for the response of every person. No one can be. Further, sometimes God's purpose is merely that people will have had a chance to hear and respond. Sometimes that's all we're doing. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, God is calling the prophet Ezekiel. He says, you're going to preach to everyone. As part of of Ezekiel's call, he says this, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Sometimes that's your job. All of us, they will know. Someday they'll stand before the Lord and they won't be able to say, I never knew. There's uh, the old joke, you've probably heard it before, of the three men shipwrecked, floating on a raft at sea, convinced that God will save them. They pray, God, we're in trouble, you need to save us. And a big ship comes by. And they say, hey, We're here. You know, it's get out of that boat, climb on up. And they say, no, God will save us. So the ship goes away. The helicopter comes by, and they throw down the ladder, and they say, hey, we're here. We're here to save you. Get up. They say, no, no, no. God will save us. And, of course, they've turned down all of their salvation, so they die. And you think that, I mean, we said this once or twice in the past, but My goal is that someday when I appear before the Lord, he's not going to say, well, that was stupid. Like, why did you go that way? You know, the doctor told you not to do that. Or, you know, you knew that jumping off, doing that cliff jump was a bad idea. You you knew you were making a bad choice there. Now, God's not actually going to say that to us, just to be clear. But I think the principle of the thing is helpful. That God will hold us accountable for the choices that we've made to listen and obey, or to hear and refuse. And God will sometimes use his people for that purpose. You are not, your ministry is not in vain. It's not a guarantee you did it wrong, just because fewer people than you wanted got to know Jesus as you shared. When we are on mission, there's going to be criticism, and that's okay. Answer it. And then when it's not profitable to answer, move on. Recognize that sometimes people will misunderstand because they're thinking, we're just thinking in entirely different ways in the first place. Do your best to communicate and recognize that it's up to God to get that through to people. When we're on mission, stay until the work is done and then move on. Or move on when the opportunity itself is gone. It's God's business to change people's hearts. Our business is just to create a place where that can happen. Just to love our neighbors, to tell them the truth, and to let God do his work.